Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of nine-year-old Anson Stover in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. Let's get right to it. Lockhaven is a quaint little place in central Pennsylvania with small-town charm. With its many rivers, creeks, canals, and forests, there are plenty of scenic views and tons of opportunities to enjoy everything nature has to offer. It's the kind of place where kids are let out of school for the first couple days of antler deer season, so they never miss an opportunity to bag a big old buck. Sounds like my kind of place. With a relatively low crime rate, nothing much happens in Lockhaven. But on November 30, 2020, the entire town was shocked at what was found inside a residence on East Bald Eagle Street, and it all started with a frantic 911 call at around 3 p.m. According to the Express, the call came from a man named Hugh Jackson. He told the dispatcher that his daughter, 36-year-old Jamie Lynn Jackson had called him and told him that, quote, something terrible had happened and she needed his help. Hugh Jackson also reported that Jamie had threatened to kill herself if police were called. She was hysterical and Hugh was concerned for the welfare of his daughter, but also concerned for a child in the home because Jamie made statements that led Hugh to believe a child may have been deceased. This was a frightening enough phone call to receive, but what made it all the more suspicious is that Hugh Jackson was estranged from his daughter and hadn't heard from her in roughly three years, not to mention the fact that he lived an entire state away in New York. But he was hauling ass to Lockhaven. He knew something horrific must have occurred so he ignored the pleas of his estranged daughter and immediately notified authorities. Officers agreed to meet Hugh at his daughter's apartment. When they arrived, they found him hugging her in the doorway. According to Penn Live, officers then entered Jackson's apartment in the 600 block of East Bald Eagle Street. They made their way up to the second floor bathroom, where they found nine-year-old Anson Stover curled up in the fetal position in the bathtub. He was wearing clean, dry clothes. The officers noticed visible injuries and bruises on the back of the boy's head. It was clear that Anson was deceased. The county coroner, Zach Hanna, was called, and Anson Landon Mitchell Stover was pronounced dead at 4.15 p.m. Monday, November 30, 2020. But what had happened? Why was this nine-year-old child found fully clothed and dead inside of a bathtub? 
responding officers looked to the only adult who lived in the apartment, Jamie Lynn Jackson. You see, including Anson, there were six children living there, and Jamie Lynn was the sole person responsible for all of them. But they weren't all biologically hers. Jackson only had two daughters of her own. She was the maternal aunt of the other four children. She had gained temporary custody of Anson and his three sisters after their mother and her sister, Lindsay Stover, had unexpectedly died at the age of 27 on March 11, 2017. Anson was the only male living inside the home, and officers would later report that it appeared all of the girls were well-fed and dressed and seemingly cared for. The same could not be said of Anson, and soon shocking details would emerge. But initially, his death was just a blip in the local news. On December 1st, 2020, the headline on Penn Live read, Death of nine-year-old boy is under investigation in Lockhaven. The community would soon learn that Anson's death was not due to some tragic accident or medical condition, not by a long shot. Something dark and sinister had been going on behind the closed doors of that apartment for some time, something law enforcement officials suspected from the very moment they entered the doors on November 30th, something that was confirmed in their minds the minute Jamie Lynn Jackson told her version of what happened the days leading up to Anson's death. According to arrest affidavits obtained by the Express, Jackson told police she discovered Anson in his bedroom on the evening of November 28th, lying on the floor, fully nude, with clear plastic tape around his neck. Jackson claimed she'd cut the tape from his neck and that Anson was unresponsive but breathing, and had fluid coming from his mouth. So she called 911, right? Absolutely not. Instead, according to her own statement, she dressed him, carried him to the bathroom, and put him in the bathtub. Because isn't that exactly what you do when you find a child unresponsive with fluid coming out of their mouth? Jackson went on to say that she checked on him periodically over the next two days, and noted that over the next 48 hours, Anson never responded, or even so much as moved. On November 30th, again, two whole-ass days after she put him in the bathtub, she finally realized he was not okay, when she touched his face and it was cold and hard. That's when she called her father, who, of course, notified police. When asked about the injuries to Anson's head, she claimed she didn't know how he would have gotten them. But that story would change. And faced with the findings of an autopsy report, Jackson would later blame nine-year-old Anson for his own death. On December 2, 2020, an autopsy was performed, and what was uncovered was gut-wrenching. According to Penn Live, the preliminary autopsy report listed not one but two causes of death, blunt force injuries to the head 
and multiple blunt force injuries in general. More lab tests would have to be done to determine the extent of the head injuries, which were forceful enough to cause swelling and bleeding of the brain. Anson Stover had been beaten to death, and it was clear that the beating that caused his death was just the tip of the iceberg. According to the Express, city police detective Richard Simpson was present for Anson's autopsy. He later testified in a preliminary hearing about the evidence of horrific abuse this child had suffered, stating, It was the worst badly beaten body I have ever seen. There is not any part of his body that didn't have an injury. He had a black eye, cut lip, gash on the chin, bruises on his face and head. His legs were covered with abrasions, bruises, and open wounds. There were circular injuries that looked like cigarette burns. His genital areas showed lacerations and blood. And further, later testimony would reveal that Anson had lost 17 pounds in a matter of months. At a doctor's visit in March of 2020, he weighed 71 pounds. He was strong and healthy. At the time of his autopsy, Anson Stover only weighed 54 pounds. According to the CDC, the average weight for a 9-year-old boy is somewhere around 63 pounds. This child had gone from being healthy and above average in weight to gaunt and well below the average. Aside from medical issues, of which in Anson's case, there are none documented that I could find, children do not drop 17 pounds for no reason. Anson's weight and condition began to decline after the COVID lockdown when, like most school districts, the Keystone Central District went completely virtual. Prior to the lockdown, school officials and teachers that saw Anson five days a week never reported any bruises or that they suspected abuse. From all accounts, Anson was a happy and well-adjusted child. In the span of eight months, with seemingly the only adult in his life being Jamie Lynn Jackson, this child went from happy-go-lucky and healthy to bruised, beaten, and ultimately dead. Let's get back to the second story Jackson told when confronted by police with the injuries documented in the autopsy report. Because if you thought that first story was a crock of flaming hot bullshit, buckle up, buttercup, because round two was even more bullshit, only this time she decided to sprinkle a whole cup of blame right on top. According to the Express, at first she denied seeing any injuries to the boy she claimed she found fully nude, unresponsive, on his bedroom floor. I mean, everyone else that saw Anson described injuries. Even responding officers noted significant injuries to the child's head while he was still fully clothed. But Jackson? She didn't see a thing. Except she did, because when pressed further, she told Detective Simpson that Anson was, quote, a self-destructive little boy 
who ruined things, destroyed toys, and deliberately urinated on the floor. And that Anson did all the injuries to himself. According to Penn Live, she further expressed her frustration with his behavior, claiming he was the reason she and her two children were not living with her partner in Elkland, behavior that no one else in his life had ever reported. And others actually described Anson as the complete opposite. But hey, it's her lie. I'll let her tell it. She repeated that same story about finding him in the bedroom, only this time with a few more details. According to court testimony obtained by the Sun Gazette, Jackson told investigators that one of her daughters had first seen Anson in his room with tape around his neck. According to Jackson, she went to the bedroom and used scissors to remove the tape. She claimed he was still breathing but unresponsive, so she dressed him and put him in that bathtub. Because according to her own statements, she thought Anson wasn't really unresponsive and that he was just faking it. Fox 56 reports that Jackson claimed Anson remained in the bathtub for approximately 24 to 48 hours while she shampooed blood out of the carpet in his room, washed his clothes, showered, slept, and cared for the other children. It's important to note that investigators found the rest of the house in disarray, with the exception of the room belonging to Anson. In addition to the carpets being recently cleaned, detectives also noticed that the room had been wiped down thoroughly and dusted. According to Jackson's statement to Detective Simpson, Anson did not move from the bathtub after she placed him there. He never got up to eat, drink, or use the restroom. She claimed that she checked on him several times, asking if he wanted pizza. And when she didn't get a response, this monster, according to her own account, stood over a nine-year-old child curled up in the fetal position in a cold, hard bathtub, motionless, and told him again to stop faking it. According to ABC 27, Jackson told investigators it wasn't until Monday morning, November 30th, two days after she placed Anson in that bathtub, Two days of getting absolutely zero response. Two days of Anson not moving at all that she realized that he was, quote, probably not okay. And that was only after she claimed she touched his face and it was hard and cold. That's when she called her estranged father and threatened to kill herself if he contacted police. At no point in time did Jamie Lynn Jackson contact 911 or seek medical assistance for the nephew she was trusted to care for. Of course, investigators didn't buy any of this. Did she really expect anyone to believe this child had tortured and abused himself? 
And further, the evidence didn't even come close to backing that story up. For one, during the autopsy, in spite of the multiple bruises, abrasions, cigarette burns, and lacerations covering this child from head to toe, you know what wasn't found? Any tape residue, not on his neck area, no sign that tape had ever been anywhere on his body. What's more is what else was found after the police searched a dumpster beside the residence. They located empty beer cans, empty Clorox bottles, cleaning supplies like rags and prescription pill bottles with Jamie Jackson's name on them, a pair of 26R jeans, a tank top, and a sports bra. The cleaning supplies made sense given what we know, but why had Jackson ditched an entire outfit? And just one. It wasn't like she cleaned out her closet and tossed a bag of clothes. It was one solitary outfit. Was it possibly the one that she had worn on November 28th? Was she afraid of what would be found on that outfit? At the conclusion of that second interview on Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020, Jamie Lynn Jackson was arrested and charged in the murder of her nephew, nine-year-old Anson Stover. She was charged with homicide, aggravated assault, tampering with evidence, abuse of a corpse, concealing the death of a child, and endangering the welfare of children. It was soon decided she would be held without bail. Needless to say, as details of the truth of what little Anson had endured began to trickle out, the community was horrified and devastated. On Friday, December 11th, according to PA homepage, the community gathered and held a vigil to remember the nine-year-old little boy loved by everyone who knew him. Together, they prayed, lit candles, sang songs, and embraced each other in honor of Anson. There were hundreds of people in attendance. His teacher at Robb Elementary School, Mackenzie McCain, was one of those people. She spoke to the outlet and remembered Anson Stover as the best little boy you will ever meet. She went on to say that his loss had changed her life forever, stating, I will second guess every step I take and every move I make from here on out. I will look at every student a million times different and overanalyze everything. A fourth grade classmate also spoke, telling the reporter that Anson was one of her best friends, and she had just gotten a Goosebumps book for him and couldn't wait to read it with him during recess. But now she'd never get the chance. She said, I was going to give it to him when we went back to school, but we were on our Thanksgiving break so I never got to. In the midst of this tragedy, the community pulled together in a huge way. Local businesses became donation sites for the many people who donated gifts at the vigil and beyond for Anson's siblings. Money was also raised to help cover the unexpected costs of a funeral for his extended family. 
The community rallied around Anson's siblings and Jamie Lynn Jackson's daughters. Everyone wanted to know that the other children were safe. The district attorney assured local community members that they were, speaking to the Express and stating, there are no safety concerns for the children whatsoever right now. He didn't, however, elaborate on who had custody or where they might be staying. On February 15, 2021, what would have been Anson's 10th birthday, his fourth grade classmates and teacher at Robb Elementary School gathered to celebrate their classmate once again. They all wore his favorite color, red, and wrote birthday notes to their friend, taped them to red balloons, and released the balloons into the sky. He had left such a big impact on his teacher and classmates, and they wanted to honor that, so they did. It wasn't long before District Attorney Strauss had another statement to make. In February of 2021, according to the record online, he filed formal notice that the state intended to seek the death penalty against Jamie Lynn Jackson. Prior to her arraignment, which was scheduled for February 22, 2021, the DA filed a notice of aggravating circumstances in the case of the Commonwealth versus Jamie Lynn Jackson. In the court filing obtained by the record online, the DA alleged three aggravating circumstances that he intended to submit to the jury at sentencing. Number one, that the victim was a child under 12 years of age. Two, that the defendant committed a killing while in the perpetration of a felony. And three, that the offense was committed by a means of torture. Days prior to her formal arraignment, Jamie Lynn Jackson waived her right to have one and acknowledged that she was aware of the charges against her. She notified the court that she would be entering a not guilty plea. Time ticked on as the community waited for a trial. They wanted justice for Anson. In July of 2021, everyone caught a glimpse of what the defense might be when a lengthy pretrial motion was filed. The motion included suppression of evidence, preventing the use of photographs of Anson's body, moving the trial outside of the county, and finding the death penalty unconstitutional. And those were just the highlights. When I say lengthy, I mean like a CVS receipt for toothpaste and deodorant. According to court documents obtained by the Express, who let me just say did an incredible job reporting on this case, the defense claimed that officers entered the residence without authorization. They contend that officers were called to determine Jackson's safety and, quote, it was unnecessary for police to proceed into the home, as she had answered the door with her father. They're further quoted in the motion as saying, All the evidence obtained from the home is fruit of the poisonous tree and inadmissible at trial. How the hell did we end up here talking about poisonous trees? Well, the defense wasn't talking about the manganese tree, which, according to Science Alert, produced not only fatal fruit, 
but such toxic sap that standing under one of these death trees during a rainstorm would result in severe skin burns as the raindrops mix with the sap. And they weren't talking about the Othalanga, or suicide tree, that grows wild in parts of India, which according to news scientists, has killed hundreds, possibly thousands of people over the past 30 years. The toxin found in the seeds of the plant has been described as the perfect murder weapon. Perfect murder weapon? Let's talk about it for a minute. It's known as cerberin and is toxic to the heart. It kills by blocking calcium ion channels in the heart muscles, disrupting and often stopping the victim's heartbeat. That particular toxin is not something that is routinely tested for, and experts theorize that countless murders are either written off as suicide or go completely undetected. Caustic acid rain? Nearly undetectable poison. Basically, nature is a savage. Anyhow, all of this has nothing to do with nothing. I just couldn't possess that knowledge without dropping it. The poisonous treat Jackson's defense was referring to is a legal doctrine established all the way back in 1920, which according to Cornell Law, makes evidence inadmissible in court if it was derived from evidence that was illegally obtained. As the metaphor suggests, if the evidential tree is tainted, so is its fruit. How did it apply in this case? Jackson's defense claimed that since officers were called to determine Jackson's safety and it was, quote, unnecessary for police to proceed into the home as she had answered the door with her father, Therefore, all of the evidence obtained from inside the apartment, according to the defense, was fruit of the poisonous tree and inadmissible at trial. And on its face, that was true. When Hugh Jackson initially called 911, he was concerned for the welfare of his estranged daughter. But she had made statements that led him to believe a child was deceased. Let's get real. There is not a first responder on planet Earth who isn't going to check on the welfare of the children after such a statement was made. And further, as with most things in life, the fruit of the poison tree does have exceptions. Number one, if it was discovered from a source independent of the illegal activity. Number two, its discovery was inevitable. Number three, or if there is an attenuation between the illegal activity and the discovery of the evidence. And then there's the good faith exception. If officers had reasonable good faith belief that they were acting according to legal authority, such as relying on a search warrant that is later found to have been legally defective, the illegally seized evidence is admissible under this rule. The defense requested that the court prevent the photographs of Anson's body from being used during the trial. Court documents stated that the defense was not contesting Anson's wounds or his cause of death, but believed they could be described by anticipated witnesses. Quote, Use of photographs would be duplicative, irrelevant, and inflammatory. 
They also asked the court to move the trial from Clinton County because they didn't believe Jackson could receive a fair shake under the circumstances. Writing, Before, during, and after the time of her arrest, the defendant has been the subject of extensive, inflammatory, sensational, and highly inculpatory publicity about this incident. And that community sentiment is clearly against the defendant. And false information has been circulated, including claims of a firearm being used. Three of the defense's motions related to the death penalty, which includes a request to declare it unconstitutional in this case. The defense motioned to reject a notice of aggravated assault as well as hold an evidentiary hearing concerning that particular claim, because according to the defense, the prosecution did not provide facts to back up the claim that Jackson committed a killing by means of torture. And further, the defense claimed that the prosecution's, quote, lack of specific circumstances is fatal to its ability to continue its pursuit of the death penalty and pursuit of capital punishment violates the defendant's rights to due process and a fair trial. The judge took his time and carefully considered all the motions. In September of 2021, Judge Craig Miller made his ruling and denied nearly every part of that pretrial motion submitted by Jamie Lynn Jackson's defense. Of the fruit of the poison tree claim, Judge Miller wrote in part that in the present case, the police were informed that a child was deceased and in the bathtub on the second floor. The police entered the residence and traveled directly to that area, finding the child deceased. The police thereafter preserved the scene and refrained from conducting any other police activity until a search warrant was obtained. Clearly, the police had a specific objective and articulable reason to enter residences, i.e. to render aid to the child or confirm the child's death. He went on to say that no person would reasonably expect a police officer, a public servant, to not enter that residence under the circumstances presented to the officers. Thank you, Judge Miller. The photographs? Obviously, photographs of the abuse Anson suffered at the hands of Jamie Lynn Jackson were relevant. This little boy lost his life due to that abuse. Of course it was relevant. Inflammatory? Maybe. But aren't all photographs of an abused and deceased child inflammatory by nature? As far as moving the trial to a different jurisdiction, the case had received the same local media attention one would expect. Therefore, that motion was also denied. And when it came to the constitutionality of the death penalty? Well, shit. One could argue that until the cows come home at Cadillac Ranch. But it didn't matter, because at the time the murder was committed, Pennsylvania state law upheld the right of the state to seek the death penalty. And the state believed they could prove three aggravating factors, which would qualify this case for the death penalty. That argument was for later on down the road at sentencing. 
one sole motion was granted and the judge's findings, and that was regarding the use of a supplemental jury questionnaire. The reporting is unclear on exactly what the supplemental jury questionnaire was, but if I was a betting woman, I'd guess it had something to do with additional questions regarding a juror's view on the death penalty. And with that, everyone held their breath and waited for a trial to begin. But it would never happen, because on November 14, 2021, State police and the Clinton County District Attorney made an announcement that changed everything. According to PA homepage, Jamie Lynn Jackson was found suffering a medical emergency at the Clinton County Correctional Institute where she was being held awaiting trial. Jackson was transported by ambulance to UPMC Lock Haven Hospital and, according to the coroner, pronounced dead at 12.48 p.m. Officials didn't release any other details about what had happened to Jackson other than the fact that foul play was not suspected. An autopsy was scheduled for two days later. But the results would take some time. Two months went by before the Clinton County Coroner and District Attorney made another joint statement. According to the record online, their statement read in part, In regards to the investigation into the death of Miss Jamie Jackson, who died November 14, 2021, at the UPMC Lockhaven Hospital in Lockhaven, PA, autopsy, pathology, and toxicology results have concluded that Miss Jackson died of a multi-drug overdose due to fluoxetine and bupropion. Her manner of death has been ruled accidental. They went on to say again that there was no indication of foul play or other individuals involved. Fluoxetine, more commonly known as Prozac and according to Medline Plus, most often prescribed to treat depression and OCD, is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or SSRI. Overdoses resulting in death from fluoxetine alone are rare, although it is possible. The most recent statistics I could find come from the American Association of Poison Control Centers, which reported over 50,000 overdose cases in 2016, where SSRIs were mentioned. Of these reported cases, 102 were fatal. However, in all but one of these fatalities, co-ingestants were involved, which leads us to the second medication found in high levels in Jackson's system, bupropion. According to WebMD, bupropion is used to treat depression and as a smoking cessation. Common brands include Welbutrin and Zyban. We do know Jackson was a smoker. I mean, how could anyone forget that Anson had multiple cigarette burns on his body at the time of his death? While I don't want to speculate the reasons Jackson was prescribed a certain medication, that does make sense. According to the Tennessee Poison Control Center, overdoses on bupropion are commonly reported to poison centers. Because bupropion has a small therapeutic window, 
Even a slight dosage error can potentially cause complications, including vomiting, tachycardia, tremor, agitation, and seizures. But again, fatal overdose is rare. However, though these two medications are often prescribed together, there is a slight risk involved. According to Drugs.com, combining these medications may increase the risk of seizures. And in addition, bupropion can increase the blood levels of fluoxetine, which may increase other side effects. It's likely that Jackson's fatal overdose was due to the combination of both drugs in high levels. And while the medical examiner didn't elaborate, the findings released to the public of accidental multi-drug overdose seem to suggest just that. But these findings left so many unanswered questions. As you can imagine, medications aren't just willy-nilly handed out in jail, and a specific protocol for dispensing meds is followed. So how did Jackson get access to enough medication to overdose? And if her death was accidental, was it just a coincidence that this overdose occurred on the day before her 37th birthday? That fact alone caused many in the community to believe that Jackson's death wasn't an accident, and perhaps she had taken her own life. And as we all know, she had threatened to do just that the day Anson's body was found. Regardless of how or why it happened, it happened. And with Jackson dead, there would be no trial. There would also be no services held for Jamie Lynn Jackson. Anson Stover was just nine years old when his life was ripped away violently at the hands of the person trusted to care for him after the loss of his mother. At a time when Anson needed to be showered with every drop of love and support imaginable, he was abused by a monster. His three sisters have suffered two major losses and more heartbreak than any child should ever face. Their lives and the lives of Jackson's own two daughters will never be the same again. Anson Landon Mitchell Stover was described by his extended family as a true gentleman with a kind soul and the biggest heart who always left a smile on everyone's face. A boy who gave the world a lifetime of love on his short time on earth. He will forever be treasured in the hearts of his classmates, teachers, extended family, and everyone who knew and loved him. The family would ask that in honor of Anson, you pass on a simple act of kindness. Do something kind for someone in your life today. Do it for Anson. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you an all-new case next week. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Believe me, you don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other. 
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 